we had little choice other than to change and in a range of potential responses to we'll play around the edges and see what happens to we'll go really hard and radical we went really hard and radical and kept doing that until we felt where we've we'd struck the right balance So welcome to the Resilient Recruiter podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Steve Street. And this is Steve's second appearance on the show. People love the first interview, and I feel like there was a lot more that we could have talked about. So Steve kindly agreed to an encore performance. Uh, Steve is the CEO of Cubed Talent Management, and he's got over 25 years industry experience. He describes himself as a human Swiss army knife, problem solver, acquirer and nurturer of world-class talent, therapist, wine drinker, believer in a brighter future, and most importantly, lover of dogs. So be sure to go back and listen to our previous conversation, episode 51. The title was Disrupting the Recruitment Industry, Radically Rethinking Our Client Relationships. So Steve, welcome. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be back. Awesome. And I'm just looking at your... Um, your backdrop there. So bagpipes, why Why does a Yorkshireman need bagpipes? And why not? <laughs> and why All not? Right, Nationalist stereotype. So uh, they, they were a memento from a stag do I attended in Edinburgh uh, so, uh, around 15 years ago, probably longer to be fair. So yeah, that, that it was a good idea on the day. <laughs> I did have some lessons. Uh, and I've, uh, I've, I've, I've barely played a tune out of them, but I, I thought I'd bring them into the office rather than collecting dust in my basement. And, and fair, fair enough. And why are you collecting old Macintosh computers? Well, I started with some of these sort of early first generation uh, iPods. Um, you'll remember those, and there were God knows how many iterations. So like most people, you sort of get, I'm an early adopter, I like technology. So I'm an early adopter. We know a lot of the uh, built-in obsolescence and the speed of change. So they're, they're kind of a bit of a, I'm going to sound really pretentious, this, but they sound, they're a little bit of a metaphor for, you know, how quickly tech moves on uh, and, uh, you know, what was sort of cutting edge and innovative at the time. And then you look at it and they're, they're kind of borderline relics. Uh, I remember buying a mini displayer in Tokyo and it was kind of just blew people's minds. And now you kind of look at it and think, Oh my God! <laughs> I show it to my kids, and they go, "Why? Why do you actually have hardware for that stuff? It's all kind of streaming, isn't it? It's in the clouds." So go, "Yeah, I suppose it is." But you know, having something tactile and tangible, something that's being designed and made, um, uh, is, is really quite compelling at times. So yeah, I started, you know, collecting all the the, the, the small devices, and then I started sort of trying to get my hands on some of the old. Uh, early Mac tech, but you know anybody who's into that sort of stuff knows um, the you know the prices have gone completely through the roof on them. I didn't completely. know that. Wow, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Apparently so. So, um, got, so we last spoke almost a year ago, February twenty twenty one. What's been happening at uh, at Cubed Talent Management since then? Jeez. <laughs> I know. Where do this you start? Long, right? A long podcast. This is going to be a Joe Rogan epic, <laughs> four-hour epic. But, well, just well, like everybody, I don't think there's anything particularly unique about our situation. And um, I, I think, um, you know, the, the whole – it almost just sounds like you know, it's been there and done it now. Uh, but the whole COVID piece, you know, there we were sort of – 
getting on with what you know the plan and it was we'd had a decent 2019 we'd had a decent 2018 and we were sort of kind of moving into the new financial year uh and i think we were probably what was it about mark so we're about probably four three four months into the plan it's kind of going all right and then of course that occasion where boris stood up in the house and uh announced the whole sort of i think we were all calling it sort of coronavirus then and then that sort of morphed into covid and uh, and that C19, I remember being banded around at the time. So I think, uh, you know, what we were all what we all thought life was about and how things were going to be, all of that very quickly was up in the air. Uh, and uh, so we things were moving very quickly and they were very dynamic. And, you know, I'm going to keep so what runs throughout of all of this. So the thread that runs, that, that, that was not unique to us. It was the same for everybody and more difficult for a lot of people than perhaps it, it kind of was for us. So I didn't want to kind of catastrophize it. It was sort of bad enough. Um, I thought my role and responsibility was to kind of keep cool heads uh, and, you know, just to try and navigate the business through, you know, whatever it was we were we were facing and we were being confronted with. All, and that became, you know, almost a real time on a daily basis, um, repositioning and adapting and sort of getting used to and getting our heads around things. Um, but it was a really interesting time. And, and I, I think without sounding like I'm kind of fetishizing the pandemic, which was terrible and truly a crisis for too many people, there was something strangely exhilarating about the whole thing where there was little we were completely in control of. And and I think it had a bit of a levelling effect, almost a bit of a control-alt-delete. You know, whatever you did, however you thought, however good you were, uh, however relevant you were yesterday, all of that, I think, now is up in the air and potentially up for grabs. So what we did as a business is, and, and again, without sounding cheesy, you know, the Warren Buffett line, which is when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked, is we watched our numbers because we were very exposed to the sort of sectors and markets and clients and the, the kind of jobs that were, were kind of first in line terms of uh, being affected by you know those changes so uh, and we had i wouldn't say record numbers but we had really healthy numbers and we were ahead of target and ahead of you know most of the metrics on a daily basis and it became a little bit of a joke's probably not the right word but it became a bit of a sort of thing where we said well we're kind of coming down but i think we're near the bottom well we're still coming down but i think we're near the bottom so we were going from being probably, I don't know, five to ten thousand pounds over our break even on a weekly basis to losing at one point twenty thousand pounds on a weekly basis. So it's a complete reversal, complete about turn. The whole thing was on its head. Um, but I think what held everybody together is in our values and, you know, as I was about to say, which is it can sound a little bit sort of cheesy and inauthentic talking about values. But what was clear was when the numbers fell away and the clients fell away and all that uncertainty sort of rushed in and displaced all the sort of normality, familiarity and comfort we, we were all used to, it's all we were really left with um, was each other as a team. And I was very conscious of and very respectful and mindful of you know people and their home situations their lives their partners their children and the chaos that was kind of and the uncertainty that was being visited upon them and so work and the office and cube sort of became a little bit of a sanctuary we're in this together and we're going to have a conversation and we're not a hierarchical business to start with 
But any sort of idea of hierarchy and one person being more important than this was a massive Maslow thing. It came down to, you know, the, the sort of just general basic fundamental human needs of association, community, security, sense of belonging. Uh, then we built from there. Mm. So I know that sounds a bit existential and a bit deep. It wasn't. It was much more sort of normal, organic and natural. Um, but it, it, was, it, it had a really sort of renewing effect for everybody. And to answer your question, uh, fast forward to now, we've had record two years. You know, we kind of knocking it out of the park all over the place. But we really have a lot of the change that perhaps we didn't really have the headspace, the conviction, or maybe even the courage to bring about. We had little choice other than to change. And in a range of potential responses to... We'll play around the edges and see what happens to we'll go really hard and radical. We went really hard and radical and kept doing that until we felt where we've, we, we'd struck the right balance between thinking sufficiently and doing different, sufficiently different enough, but without pulling ourselves out of shape and really, you know, kind of upsetting things and breaking things to an extent where they couldn't be repaired. I know that's a really long answer, but that, that's <laughs> okay, it in a that's massive nutshell. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so... Um... I definitely want to explore the achieving a record, you know, performance by going hard and radical. But first, you talked about the values and you gave some uh, a flavor of what that in, involves. But like, what were the values that provide the sort of glue that held the business together during that crisis, which, um, you know, serves now as the, the, the sort of launching pad for that new growth yeah so so our, our values mm. uh spell the word circle uh and when we started to put them together it's a bit like when you name a company for the first time uh it kind of feels a bit odd mm. and then you keep saying it and then all of a sudden it's obviously the most natural thing in the world and that's kind of how it is um, so you kind of, you can lay it out as a concept and then, and again, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's all right claiming to have certain values or guiding principles or standards or beliefs. It's really not about, um, claiming those. It's about living those and for, for it to be sort of self-evident that these things matter and they're a thing and they're tangible and they're meaningful. So our values spell the word circle. So the first C is to communicate open honest, transparently, uh, always. So I always say in the absence of clear, concise, relevant information, people will fill that vacuum with conjecture, hearsay, their imaginations and the rest. That's not healthy. And we're not a business that does side chats and uh, cloak and dagger stuff. We have a very open and transparent conversation to a fault sometimes. You know, our chairman and my business partner and friend will sometimes um, kind of pull me up on maybe we've been too open and transparent, but that's kind of how we are. Uh, and I'm, I'm relaxed about that. I've worked in a business where, um, you know, uh, a lot of dialogue, information, decision-making was sort of kind of done offline and out of sight, uh, but it fundamentally affected people's lives and situations. So the first word is circle uh, is communication. The next one is to inspire. The next one is to reward. Uh, the next C is to celebrate. The L is love, which is more about self-care, care for each other, care for ourselves and care for our communities. And again, it sounds a little bit sort of 
cheesy, but our candidates, clients and colleagues all come from our communities by definition. They're part of the same thing, part of the same ecosystem. And the final E is to elevate. Now, they were kind of written, those ideas and those principles were written uh, for a sort of a normal and conventional uh, trading environment. But what we realized was when COVID came along and all bets were off and everything was disrupted, they became equally poignant, equally relevant, and became very tangible in the business. So we were, we were talking on a daily basis about you know, what the latest was from Sage. We're talking on a daily basis about people's situations uh, and what they needed to do to take care of, you know, their family situation and their relationships and their children and children not being schooled and at home and the sort of the, the boiler room environment of, of, of families being essentially locked in, notwithstanding you can go for a walk for an hour, but don't go far and make sure you're back. All that nonsense. Well, nonsense, sorry. I don't mean it to be political, but all of that stuff that was going on. Um, so what, what was clear was as the numbers came down and as we went from the black into the red, what really held everything together and what kept everybody focused and kept our belief and confidence and optimism high was the fact that all of these things were manifest in the business on a daily basis. And we worked all the way through it, Mark. So we basically cast ourselves as essential workers. And a lot of the people we put out to work were working in factories and supply chain and manufacturing and retail and driving stuff about and bringing stuff to people's doors and thought, well, we need to be in the thick of it too. And we gave people a choice as to work where you want, work how you want, and strike the right balance for you, your family, and your situation. And you reserve the right to change your mind on a daily basis as to what that needed to be and look like. And we've continued with that. But really what happened is most people just stuck with how we were doing things because I think that sense of connectedness, community, purpose, routine, all of that kept people sane and kept, you know, kept the wheels turning. Absolutely. Love it. I like your circle um, values and the way you describe them as well as, you know, it's it's. It's not enough just to have words on a on a page that you have to dis define exactly what does that mean in the context of our business in relation to how we behave, how we interact with each other in our community, our clients, our candidates, and so on, and have some sort of rules or guidelines around what does, you know, communicate, what does that mean for us? So uh, uh, I love that. My colleague Leanne and I just did this exercise back in, um, in December. We had a strategy day and we're... We're close to we've we decide some values, but now we're we're kind of letting it um, steep. I think a, a little bit before we uh, commit them to our web website. But um, it's definitely something we teach our clients that if you want to build a business and, and scale and and build teams, you need to know you know what you're about, why you do what you do. Um, so then you've had a record couple of years, which is awesome. I'm pleased to hear that. And you said by going hard and radical, what does that mean? So what, what we basically did is uh, COVID kicked in sort of the March, I think it was. Uh, and we kind of watched everything fall away and change before our very eyes. And then there was this, have we found the bottom, have we found the bottom, have we found the bottom? And we decided that the 1st of June 2020, will it have been, uh, we decided that was now recovery week one. So we sort of recast um, the state of the business, if you like. What was our status? Forget everything you thought 
you knew and everything, all that legacy stuff is almost irrelevant now. We've, we're effectively a startup, whether we like it or not, and we're in recovery mode. So what characterizes a startup? Well, for a start, all you've really got to do is get out there and try and win some business and compete and pay the rent and feed the kids and, 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 and I think we've lost some of that. A lot of businesses that have gone through that enterprise maturity sort of uh, consolidation cycle, you do lose that and it's really hard to re-inject. So we, we had no choice really to kind of go, we went back into not quite survival mode, but we went very much back into kind of almost like a startup mindset yes. disposition. Um, and that was recovery week one. And what we kind of talked about is, look, we're going to go into recovery mode. Then we're going to go into consolidate. Then we're going to go into growth. And then we're going to go into scale. And we're just on the cusp of growth and scale. So uh, we had a great set. We shut the year down. We run January to the end of December. Had a great year. And we've, we've put 35% on top of the budget for 2022. So what that really looked like was to flatten and simplify Mark, to answer your question, uh, and started to use this analogy of direct drive. So like, again, like a lot of businesses, businesses are often very good, particularly businesses that generate ideas and the innovate and the look for new iterations and new and better ways of doing things. If all you're doing is putting more stuff in and more layers in and more people and more moving parts, very quickly, uh, it becomes very sort of unwieldy and overly complex and not particularly quick on its feet. Uh, and what we realized, we'd done a little bit of that, and um, we'd lost that direct drive. So the foot was on the gas, the smoke coming out the back. We can hear a lot of engine noise. We can see the fuel going down, but the wheels are not turning that well, and we're getting no traction, and we're certainly not moving forward fast enough. Uh, and what, what, what the pandemic taught us, really, is to flatten and simplify, and we went back to direct drive for every input, for every hour worked, for every pound spent, uh, for every effort expended, we've got to see the wheels turn. Uh, and we've got to turn quickly and they've got to turn and you know, take us in the right direction to the next destination, which is recovery, consolidate, grow, and then scale. So that's what we did. And I'm now very vigilant about some of that you know, unnecessary inertia, bureaucracy, layering and complexity um, and keep the business completely simple. And it's kind of playbook 101, isn't it? Keep things simple. But it happens, and we allowed it to happen, and it wouldn't really have been that evident or perhaps mattered uh, had the pandemic not come along. But really, it, it kind of did matter, and we recognised it really quickly. And we took some very difficult and painful and unpopular decisions. But... Um, first rule of leadership is it's all on you so get it done um, and that's what we did i did a poll on linkedin recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge and it confirmed what i'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day the majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive listen if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. 
For example, one of their clients typically earned 5,000 pounds per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iintro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer. So in other words, she got a deposit and her fee was an incredible 20,000 pounds, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iintro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iintro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and a motto that Leanne and I like is simplicity scales, complexity fails. So I'm with you mm. conceptually, this flat and simple, simplify idea, but what does that actually look like? Could you give an example of what you've simplified yeah. and, and why it's working better? Yeah, just, and again, it's kind of the old principles. They, they endure for a reason, don't they? Which is, we, we just got focused on what we were best at. Uh, and we had lots of peripheral things that were kind of nice to talk about and good to look at. And, and I suppose aesthetically, uh, cosmetically, kind of were quite attractive. So we had our Future Skills Academy. We had a consulting business where we're still, we've still got an ILM center. We had lots of other things um, that were kind of nice to have. And I think in, when you've got an environment uh, and an economy and a climate where, you know, there's an appetite for all of that, then, you know, they, those things were relevant. When all of a sudden, um, it, you, you know, you kind of, it comes down to the crunch is what are we best at? What generates most income? What's most sustainable? Where can we compete best? So we kind of stripped all that stuff away. And not, not entirely, but what we did, we incorporated it, become much more integrated into our core offering as recruiters. The other thing we did uh, was we, kind of, we pulled everything close uh, and we simplified things. So we've now got our, ex our, our perm business, which is up here, has got the executive and technical We've got our sort of special projects, our in-house teams, and then we've got our contingency, you know, conventional permanent recruitment. We've then got our sort of managed services, which is more of a sort of detailed, um, what's the word I'm looking at, comprehensive wraparound um, proposition. And then we've got our contingency stuff. Um, so there's only three sort of value streams. And the, the synergies and the interplay between them are fairly obvious and fairly simple. So we were able to leverage those more. So things like the Future Skills Academy, workforce planning, workforce development, the ILM Center, our um, Apprentice Training Academy, that really became a bit of a distraction. And we decided to sort of just cut that loose and get stuck into kind of what we all do best and what we all enjoy and what adds most value. So. I hope that sort of goes some yeah, way to answer no, absolutely. your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. So part of that simplification was in the actual service lines or you call them value streams, but the actual things that you're delivering in the marketplace, you've, you've simplified that. Are there any other examples of things within the business that you, you simplified? Yeah. Um, well, I think just going back to that earlier point, <clears throat> and, and again, it's, it's one of those adages, the specialist will always beat the generalist. And it, we, we, there'd been a bit of mission creep and we sort of sleepwalked into some generalization. And they weren't particularly incongruous with the core business. 
but they by definition would sort of burn through limited bandwidth, headspace, time, effort, energy, resource. And the price we paid was we weren't as focused on, you know, where we were best and, you know, what added, what made, you know, delivered most value. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the simplification thing, the other simplification thing was um, just the flattening was to get, to, to move away from some of those, not hierarchical structures, but that sort of indirect. So I'd have a set of reports and they'd have some reports. And, and, and I think that slowed things down. Often communication wasn't as sort of coherent, quick, aligned, precise as it could be. Um, so again, it was really a case of that flattening thing is um, just things were more coherent. There was more clarity. Things moved quicker and we achieved, you know, we got a better return for every sort of input, whether that was time, effort, whatever. So that the, the, this, the simplification of that, you know, to start to then have a look at sustainable sectors, energy, environment, renewables, construction, you know, and, and modern methods of construction, not necessarily traditional construction, food, um, pharma, you know, medical, regardless of what goes on the economy. Uh, and I'll tell you a paradox, actually, but regardless of what goes on in the economy, these are, in theory, recession proof sectors. There's always going to be a demand. There's always going to be a need. So let's make sure we focus on positioning ourselves in sectors that are not just growing. They're sustainable in all weathers. Beautiful. So the two main things I'm getting so far are, number one, you simplified your uh, areas that you were focused on, services that you offered on the things you were best at, things you could compete um, at a high level and, and things that generated disproportionate, you know, income compared to effort and so on. That's number one. Number two, you also um, redefined the key markets that you were going to focus on and look at the areas that were uh, sustainable um, for, for long-term growth. Any other like one or two, like what, if I, if I, Put you on the spot a little bit, Stephen. Asked you like yeah, eighty twenty rule here. What are the top, you know, two or three things that are making the biggest difference to the fact that you're now, you know, have setting breaking these records? What um, more doing? Okay. Less talking, less meeting. Okay. Less over engineering, less over processing, less. I got it down to four or five, I think three or four C's, Mark. I'll see if I can remember them. And they were just observations. And what I had to do is really difficult. And I'm sure other people who've got a similar relationship that I have with their business is, is I recast myself. I was in the thick of it. Uh, and uh, so I was kind of caught up in that sort of that main narrative. And then I had to remind myself that I've got three fundamental relationships with Cube, as do other owner managers. I've got my functional relationship, my job, what I'm doing, what I'm doing now this afternoon, my job. But I'm also the di a director of the business and I have responsibilities to the shareholders. And what they're entitled to have um, is a director or a managing director uh, that's giving the business direction and guidance, is clear about the right direction to go in and why, uh, and can make a compelling and strong uh, business case for why this is the right thing to do. 
And I, I, when I was consulting between selling Relay and starting Cubed, I recognized that as I called it the owner manager's paradox. So many owner managers, because they're not held to account, they can sort of commit to some, loosely commit to some objectives. And if they don't get done, it doesn't really matter. No one's going to hold their feet to the fire. And I realized that um, I wasn't immune from falling into that trap. So I had three relationships. My functional job as a recruiter day-to-day -day and relationship builder and all the other stuff I do, a director and therefore the people the people I have responsibility for are entitled to be uh, to be working to a coherent and credible plan that helps and ensure they get what they need out of the relationship with the business, an income, a livelihood, security, opportunity, prospects. Um, and, and the other way, the, on the other, the other side of the equation, is my responsibilities to the shareholders. Because I'm the shareholder, makes no difference. So I recast myself as an investor. And I took, and then I started to look at the business through the lens of an investor. And I saw the business very differently, very differently. Uh, and it was really a case, I've got it down to these three or four Cs. And it was, we overconsult. What we do is we're kind of asking ourselves and each other, uh, we're, we're co-opting each other into some basic decision-making. We're consulting too much. Yes, I think it's coming from a good place. I think we try to be respectful and collaborative, but we're overdoing that. Consensus-seeking. We're looking for a show of hands around basic day-to-day -day decisions. When we need to have conviction, we need to move quickly. Consent. Is it okay? consent seeking and it was all a bit too polite uh, and uh, and conviction you know we and, and I, I recognize those four C's and I you know I was a culprit too there's another C I didn't even mean that one but I was a culprit too and it was slowing us down uh, and it and I think it gave people the illusion including me of being purposeful and busy and important and strategic but it was getting in the way of moving fast and doing things that brought about the necessary change. There's a great book, you may have heard of it, Move Fast and Break Things. And I'm a big advocate of that, but I found it, I found that I was kind of part of a, I was part of a system uh, uh, of this consultation and discussion and consent seeking and all of this stuff that I think was really slowing us down. You can go too far the other way, of course, where you become a unilateralist and a, dic you know, and a dictator, it's not that. But that I recognized, guys, if you spent less time talking, deliberating, you know, uh, overthinking and overprocessing and more time doing the basics, talking to clients, getting in front of people. That was something else that came out of it, Mark, that I've not mentioned. Before COVID hit, we had two significant high volume projects and the old analog way of doing things. You know, the sort of branch network and coming to site and all that nonsense. Well, not nonsense, but how things were done. So we're, I refer to that as the analog way. There's no way we would have had the throughput of candidates uh, to be able to satisfy these two major projects. One was in sort of retail and distribution and supply chain. The other one was in life sciences and biotechnology. Hundreds and hundreds of people in a very short time frame. So what we did is we started to deliver online pre-registration storyboards. So we'd make them on Google Meet, Teams, FaceTime, you name it, whatever platform. And that way we're in the convenience, comfort and safety of the candidate's home. Any time of day, any day of the week, we could take as many people through this content 
And we found that the engagement went through the roof. And we found that we were getting more people through. And the yield from those sessions was like 150% up. So we filled all of those roles. Then COVID came along. We went, well, hang on a minute. Let's just continue to do what we're doing. So that so it had almost no bearing on us at all. There's no adjustment to make because we'd had the good fortune of having these two projects to contend with where we'd already taken the steps to work remotely and deliver a lot of the stuff that used to be done in the real world in the virtual realm, which was which was serendipitous, to say the least. Absolutely. I'll say. Tell me, what is a pre-registration storyboard? So let's say, we, you know, we, I won't name the company, but here's an organization. What we, usually what we tend to say to companies, well, look, um, we've got to demystify you as an organization. Yes, people will have heard of you. I'm thinking one of, in particular, they will have heard of you. But I think they perceive you to be something other than what you are. Mm. What we've got to remember, most candidates, applicants are not that motivated or qualified to know uh, why they should invest the next stage of their career with you. What we've got to do is get out there with a very compelling story. And the story we go out and tell is really is only as good as a story as we give ourselves to tell. So let's get that narrative right. The caveat is let's not overstate or misrepresent what you've got to offer. Uh, but let's make sure we've, we're in control of the narrative. The next thing is the method. Well, why don't we invite people to, in a nice branded invite, invite people to these pre-assignment sort of welcome sessions and, and help unpack the organization? Your heritage, your background, you've been around 30 years, you're a leader in X, you've gone the cutting edge of these technologies, you've invested into R&D. And these are some of the, eco, the macroeconomics that the government, as part of its pivot in industrial strategy, sees this particular sector as being part of the future, high-skilled, high-tech, high-paid economy. Get on the ride while it's going up. Then what we can do is a show of hands at the end, an expression of interest. Who would like to take this to the next stage? I would. Brilliant. Well, there's an online assessment. And then we're going to invite you down to the company uh, and you know, get, you, get, get you closer to the opportunity. And we'd never done that before. We delivered sort of those things like in situ in a training room or an assessment center or at an interview. So we had to kind of get hundreds of people per week through these things. Uh, and we did. Uh, and we were able to do that because of the delivery method. Whereas in the old sort of practical sort of analog methodology, it would have taken months, if not years, to get that amount of people through. So that's that's kind of what so, it is. Steve, I want to break this down because it's I've not heard this approach before. I think it's really interesting. Are you describing mm. basically a webinar where you're um, showcasing your client as yes. their employer brand and you yeah. then the goal is not to get candidates to directly apply or or attend an interview. The goal is just get them to that event where yeah. we have a chance to tell the story. And then Correct. from there, we convert them to, okay, next step is this, or you, you, you want to move forward. Okay, love it. Yeah. So I think too many companies, you know, they kind of, they, they, they just can't let go of the idea that people are not forming a queue around the factory or the office to come and work for them. Right. And what we've got, it's the other way around. The dynamics completely reversed, which is what we've got to do is we're going to do this at the convenience of the candidate, make it as easy as possible and make it as, as interesting as possible. Uh, and what we say is we will put the candidate in the mood to consider a career at X. Yeah, that's, that's the beginning. Yes. Then what we've got to do is keep that energy commitment and interest high 
and you've got a role to play in that. So um, you're now, you know, you're, 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 you're a co-stakeholder in performing that ambassadorial role. Mm-hmm. Uh, mindful of the fact that this person is already in work, more often than not, has good o- other options on the table mm-hmm. and is being approached by, increasingly so, other organizations who've got their act together and are doing a very good job of selling themselves to the market. Uh, so that was uh, inadvertent. I like to say it was by design. It wasn't. It was necessity. What's that necessity of the uh, you know, uh, root of invention or whatever it is? Yep. So it was a necessity, but we'd already perfected that, uh, and we just continued with that, and we've continued to it to this day. We've just launched another big project for a modular housing builder, and it'll all be delivered online apart from when we do need people physically on the ground to go and have a look at how things Amazing. That was that was brilliant. Yeah. So uh, just so I com- have a complete picture here, are you and your team are facilitating these online uh, yes. presentations? Does the client yeah. participate in that or you are telling the story on their behalf? We work with the client to craft the asset. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get content from the client. So the latest one we did, like we finished off this Friday, has got lots of embedded video with a 3D fly-through of the manufacturing facility and some of the corporate video. So we've got we've got a great marketing team here because lots of companies, it's a bit like that one-minute pitch. You, you say to clients, look, um, uh, you get in the lift on the ground floor, you go up six floors, it's 10 seconds a floor, the sort of candidate of your dreams has just got in on the ground floor. What do you say and do to make sure when they get out on the sixth floor that they're kicking your door down tomorrow morning for an interview or a meeting? And most people can't they struggle to sell their own yeah, companies. Yeah, of course. And I understand that, yeah. which is you're very good at selling your products and services. I don't think historically there's ever been a need uh, for them to think too hard or work too hard to, to kind of sell the organization to the market. We're very good at that. Uh, and that's a combination of expertise, resources, and experience. We are very good at that. At that, And I've written storyboards from scratch. I've authored, authored them from scratch, and our marketing team then do all the creative and content development. When I show that to clients, more often than not, there are very few changes they make because they're just not used to having to talk about the business in that context and in those terms. Beautiful. So, yeah. So, and then what is the format of this thing? Is it a, like a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting or a, like the, the candidate has the invitation, they've got the diary invite, the yeah. link, they join the call, yeah. and then you yeah. or your team member give the presentation, you know, but you mentioned embedded videos. Are you playing the videos during the thing or they like could look at those after? Exactly. So not dissimilar to this, Mark. Yep. So they, 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 we, we, we speak, they make the application upstream. You know, we kind of do that pre-qualifying piece, just make sure that, you know, that they're, they're um, broadly a good fit. You know, the, the, the role's interesting to them and they're of interest to us and the client. Then we send out the branded invite. And on the branded invite, well, all they've got to do is click of a button. It launches any device, anywhere, anytime. Uh, and then it also um, signposts them to specific other information that we invite them to really expect them to mm-hmm. watch, take notice of before they jump on the call. We then sort of control the screen. So we share our screen and take them through the content. The one we did the other day has got two pieces of embedded video content. There's a Q&A at the end, a bit of an FAQ at the end. And then we log everybody off and then we log everybody back on individually to, to see you know, what, what they think and what we think. And we're there that very quickly in terms of yield, that very quickly translates then to 
expressions of interest, a formal application, and we take them through the rest of the process. But we get more people through more quickly in a more compelling way. And um, the, I did one of those uh, speed, I've done a couple of these, I'm not proud of it, but I did a speed awareness uh, course at the beginning of lockdown. And rather than go to one of those seedy hotels and sit like all sort of like sheepishly with your tail between your legs with a load of other offenders and felons, it was delivered <laughs> online. So wait, like, let me just delivered- understand. You, so you got a speeding ticket, in other words, and you had to attend a class. Is that what happened? Or? Yeah, I had to kind of, but instead, of, I don't know if you've ever, you've, you may not have been on one, no. but they send you to these sort of provincial hotels in the middle of nowhere. They're horrible. And I think that must be by design, which is, it's like the it's walk the of shame and right. completely depressing and the horrible places. And they're full of other people who've kind of done this kind of thing. And then you watch some kind of grainy old film from the 1970s, like a George and Mildred era. But anyway, it was delivered online and there were eight of us on the call. And I thought, I need to approach this respectfully. I did break the law. I can't afford to lose my license. The guy's just doing his job. Um, what else is there to on a Friday morning in the middle of lockdown? And I really enjoyed it. And actually, I found it easier to digest and understand what was being said and shared. Mm-hmm. Then I did a little quiz at the end, and we all could see each other and talk to each other. Mm-hmm. It was quite a pleasant experience, given mm-hmm. I'd broken the law. So I thought, <laughs> okay. well, if it, if it works for that kind of scenario, why wouldn't it work for the kind of situations we find ourselves in? So it really was a catalyst, and we really had our hands forced the combination of a lot of people in a very short type period of time, classic burning platform. And guess what? People can't go out anyway. Right. So you better rethink this. Right. Exactly. So that all just came together nicely for us. Fantastic. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Virtual events that you run on behalf of your client companies what happens pre getting to that call and like in terms of interaction qualification, then what, what is the step after that call? So uh, the us- not the usual stuff. We're doing a lot more stuff in terms of outbound activity and inbound. So um, all the stuff you'd expect us to do, direct approach, networking, database, job sites, social media, referrals, peer-to-peer stuff, all that kind of stuff. So that's really to kind of cast the net as far and wide as we can. 
then that initial sort of assessment of, you know, are these people potentially a good fit? Is the opportunity of, you know, of, of interest? We do all of that pre-qualifying bit. And then it really is a case of pick your day, Monday through Sunday, morning or afternoon, early or late, off you go. And then they all go out through the CRM. People click on and it launches the meeting. They typically last about 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we fly through them and we've trained the team. We've done a lot of role playing. It's not just about, you know, you know death by PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. It's not just about basically reading back what people can see. This is about bringing the whole thing to life. Mm-hmm. So kind of modulation, energy, um, interaction, pulling people into the room, albeit virtually. All of these things matter in terms of presentation and communication skills. Mm. Then at the end of it, we log everybody out and then we log back in and they go, yeah, I think it's great. It's wonderful. What happens next? Uh, and then we send them a downloadable link so they can pull that up then sort of PDF and read that in the own, their own time. We'll see you on Monday morning at 10 o'clock at XYZ. Just check your email. You'll see that. They click on that. There's a map of what to do on arrival. And off we go. But I think what that does is massively predisposes, positively predisposes the candidate. The challenge then is to say to the client, we're bringing these people to your door, you know, with a lot of uh, enthusiasm and energy and interest in working for you. Your side of the deal is to make sure we maintain those levels of energy, enthusiasm and, and interest. And that's sometimes where the challenge is. That sometimes. Yes, and what we now huge. say to clients is, let's. I think it's important that we have the right person that it, that interacts with these people. So we're now saying, let's identify sort of talent ambassadors within the company. They may not be attached to HR or recruitment, but they're good ambassadors. They tell the story about the business, and mm. um, so that's crucially important to make sure that this thing is continued and continues to work. So then you're into engagement and retention. So there's a lot more work downstream, mm. but you know we're kind of doing our bit as and starting as we mean to go on. What do you do? so the bit where this comes in? Someone's already expressed interest in the position, and it's prior to them attending an actual interview. Is that's where this correct presentation yeah. fits? But then, correct. what do you do with the client who are not good at selling the job, the company, and so on? And so you've set the bar up here because. Yeah, yeah. You, you do this for a living and you've practiced it mm-hmm. and you've you've worked hard at the story and everything else. And then they go mm-hmm. and meet the actual manager and they're not at that same level. It's a good question and it is relevant. It is topical. So one of the things we do as part of the package is, well, look, who are the people that would typically interact with candidates? We need to run some sort of workshops and mm-hmm. do some coaching with them mm-hmm. and help them understand a little bit more about what the reality is out there mm-hmm. is uh, the balance is to, we need to give ourselves a, a supply side advantage, which is we've got plenty of people who are curious. We put them in the mood to consider a career here. What we've got to do is make sure we do the next bit well. Mm. Uh, and, and more often than not, they get that and they perform a good, you know, they do a good job of that. But often that requires a little bit of coaching and awareness raising around, look, there are, depending where you look and how, you know, when you look, where you look and when you look, there's anywhere between 800,000 and 2 million jobs. That 2 million thing is totally overstating it. That's organizations kind of publishing the same job or maybe no jobs just to kind of, just to kind of try and generate some footfall and some interest. And a lot of those jobs don't compare and therefore, um, they're not relevant to what you're trying to do. But let's say, you know, for, you know, let's say there's 
800,000 open roles. That is a lot. And we've also got in terms of, you know, workforce sentiment, a lot of people now, more people, more organizations than ever are reporting high levels of attrition, yeah. counter offers, disengagement, you know, and people fundamentally rethinking what it means to work, how they want to work, where they want to work and how, when they want to work. So all of that's going on in terms of, I suppose, candidate and workforce sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot at stake here. We only get one opportunity to make the right impression for the first time once. Let's not blow it. Where we have a situation, and we have got quite a lot of these, where they really just don't have the resource or the expertise or the confidence are going to do a good job of that, uh, we do that on their behalf as part of the managed service. Mm. And what we always say is we dial Cube down and we dial the, the employer brand and identity up. Mm -hmm. This is not about us sort of co-opting or piggybacking them. We're, we're comfortable in our own skin. You know, we don't need to promote ourselves in that situation. We need to promote you and, and people need to identify and connect and uh, and relate to you. So we do we do a lot of wraparound work on that for organizations mm -hmm. that perhaps have just got challenges with resource or capability. But, you know, we, it's not really been that much of an issue. And I think it's self-regulating, Mark. An organization that doesn't see the value in that mm -hmm. is not prepared to do things differently. It's probably just self-harming and we'll let them get on with that. You know, when they're ready to kind of look at doing things differently, then uh, that's where perhaps we can come in and help make a difference. Yeah, or they're they're a source company rather than a client company. Yeah, um, if they're not getting, they're not yet grasping this, and they're not embracing the opportunity you're giving them. So I love it. Um, what's cool is you do a lot to really differentiate you know, cubed uh, and the value that you're bringing to your your client companies. We, sh we should probably give a shout out to the team at iIntro because that's who first introduced us. Um, yeah. And uh, they, I, I don't know if you know this, they're now a sponsor of the show. So I, no I noticed, yeah. Yeah. Good. And uh, so yeah. How, how do you know Plamen, James, Darren, those guys? Uh, yeah, Matt Plamen in... Uh L LBR, Life Before Recruitment. So <laughs> Plamen and I, okay. uh, our, our um, paths, paths um, crossed well before 1993. Oh, no, it will have been about then. So 1993. So I worked for a company called Linkup. I worked for a guy called Larry Gould, who was a pioneer in his time. I feel fortunate that I went to work for Linkup because it was the Wild West at the time. And Larry, to his eternal credit, just ran a brilliant organization with great morals and values and ethics and an incredibly high bar. But I managed to get over it and stay over it, which was good. And I met sort of Plam and then. Uh, and then when I sold uh, Relay, uh, Plam and, and I had a conversation. And I went and just did a bit of work with those guys at Grass Greener and then got closer to the eye intro piece. Uh, and they, as you, you, you'll know, Plam and, you know, he's a force of nature. He's a unique individual. <laughs> True. He's, he, you know, he's, he's a very generous person with his knowledge and what he knows and who he knows and in other ways too. He's just the, the great – and Paul. So they're great people. And, Paul, that's, and that's a right. great technology they've got. And it's a great business they have. And him, Darren, Paul, and others are probably the strongest advocates for our industry and have been so for a lot of years before it was cool to be. So totally. yeah, I put a lot of time for those guys. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think I bumped into them on something like 20, 
15 or 16. It was there, thereabouts. And uh, I saw an ad on LinkedIn and it was for a white paper or ebook called The Death of Contingency. And I thought, hey, this is this is exactly what I teach. I need to, you know, find out what this is. So I I opted in to get this uh this report or ebook. And I thought, wow, this is really good. This is very much in line with my thinking and the you know, shift to more of a committed search with a client where they're paying money up front and they believe they see you as a partner and everything else. So so I was kind of aware of them. And then what I didn't know is Plamen was doing the exact same thing to me. He was downloading my kind of lead magnets and ebooks and stuff and and uh, admiring what I did. And then we ended up talking and just really hit it off. And uh, so then he did a webinar for, for my group and then he invited me to speak for his clients. And we've just found that there's a, a lot of synergy there because our philosophies, you know, dovetail so, so nicely. Um, for sure. And so regarding... There's one more thing I wanted to pick up on, Steve, which you mentioned a couple of times and then the conversation moved on and I wanted to ask you about, which was talking less and doing more, which I th- I, I can't think there would be a business owner out there who wouldn't embrace that concept. But how do you actually do that? Because, you know, how, how what does that look like? How do you implement that and get more doing yeah i think that's a that's a really good question i think it starts with or a big piece of that is self-awareness is for people to be much more self-aware about you know where their time effort and energy is going and then i real that all those three time effort and energy they're all kind mm-hmm. of part of the same component is being much more self-aware self-auditing you know, kind of, right, well, it's, uh, I got here at eight o'clock, it's 20 past 10. What have I actually ch- achieved? What have I done? Time management sort of uh, analyses. You know, well, there's Monday, there's Friday. I work 45 hours this week. Uh, let's have a kind of, let's break that down into uh, tasks one, two, three, well, activities one, two, three, and four. And you put that into a quadrant and go, well, actually, you know, there's a lot of my, time, effort, and energy invested into sort of non-productive but fairly popular and enjoyable things. Excessive socializing, mm-hmm. just being aware of it mm-hmm. and confronting it. And, you know, as a culture, as a, as a company culture, and me, as I generally say to people is, look, I'll show you where to look but not necessarily what to see. What I want you to do is think about um, how much time, you know, you know, where you're putting your time, effort, and energy and how productive you're being. And it's not just about you. Inevitably involves others. How many other people you're pulling out of position, yeah, and mm. distracting? Mm-hmm. Where perhaps you're getting yourself into another one of my favourite lines because I'm, I'm boring. You spend enough time with me, I just I'm on a loop. Is what I call a three-legged race. You're in a three-legged race. Uh, you know, it, it's ungainly. It's not attractive to look at, uh, and you're basically co-opting too many other people into the same thing. You might pass that off as collaboration and coaching, but I'm not sure you're working as productively as you can. And the three principles I introduce people to is dependency, where, which is fairly self-evident, interdependence, where, sorry, independence, where you can work independent of each other, but the holy grail is interdependence. 
where you've got a group of people working independent of each other towards you know shared aims and goals and objectives um, that's crucially important so I, I think in terms of a benign approach to that is self-reflection making people more self-aware inviting them to think about where they're putting the time effort and energy and why and what they would do with the benefit of getting in a time machine going back and doing it again how can it be this person performing this job in this company this person performing the job in this company this person's that productive and this person's that productive so ostensibly in the same job in the same environment with the same opportunities and challenges i'll tell you what the difference is application purpose and productivity that's it uh, and if that doesn't work then we very quickly get into a conversation about perhaps how they can take control back of their time what productive is if you can't measure it if the client's not impressed by it you ain't producing you ain't producing so let's agree what we can explicitly and unequivocally agree is production it's got a number on it it's got a percentage on it uh, it can be it can be measured uh, meaningfully on the bottom line. Uh, I think that's important. But the challenge, of course, in an environment like ours, you've got a lot of sort of friendly, um, effusive, interesting, um, high energy people. It's easy for all of that to happen, uh, and and it should happen that you know people are having a you know they're having a good relationship with their 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 colleagues in the business. Um, but there's a balance to be struck. And, and, and I suppose things like, well, if you are going to meet, there's three of you in the meeting and the meeting went on for an hour. That's three hours. Yeah. And here's the cost of that, those three hours. What came out of it? Right. What came out of it? What was the before and after impact of having that meeting? Three of you. And that's not just that. It's what you weren't doing while that meeting was going on. And I don't want to sound too draconian. And real simple things can be, uh, I always stand up when I meet. Don't sit down. You're not <laughs> staying. I'm not staying. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Let's quickly interact. The other thing to do is, if it's not really critical, let's take that offline and we'll have a conversation after half past five. Let's not just lob it in the middle of the day and run the risk of distracting things. Or if it's a topic where you take the lid off it and you start to unpack it, it's going to be big and it's going to burn time. Leave it. Do it some other time or not at all. So um, I'm not sure that answers your question, it, but it a, a lot of it really just starts with people taking personal responsibility for what they're doing. So, I mean, you've, you've shared a lot of great principles there for personal and organizational productivity, but how is this imparted? Is it a training? Is it regular coaching? Is it reminders during a one-to-one? -one? Like what is the mechanism for people to start taking ownership for their productivity and thinking in this way? I, I, I think not so much training, although you can train around personal productivity, personal effectiveness, time management, prioritization. You can do all of those top 10, 10, top 10 time wasters. You can do all of these sort of time audits. So then you can have a look at that information and hopefully modify your behavior, mm -hmm. hopefully modify your behavior. So I think there is a training component. I think some of it can be coaching where it's in the situation where um, we're getting the job done, we're adding value, we're transferring knowledge and not just practical competencies, but some of the behavioral considerations because mm. time wasting is a behavior. 
<laughs> Over-socialization is a behavior. Um, uh, prevarication, procrastination is a behavior, but, certainly but not Stephen, a skill. How would that come up? Like you are aware that the person is distracting their colleagues and, and like doing too much, like they've crossed the line in between like yeah, yeah, a good yeah. level of socialism. Not like, how do you, how, yeah. how do you raise that as a behavioral issue? I observe issue? it. Yeah. I observe it. And, and I've got to be, I try and be patient with myself, which is I, I observe things over a period of time. So I'm not just taking a snapshot and I'm not responding too quickly in the moment without having a fuller picture. Mm-hmm. And then I will, um, log in my own mind examples of that mm-hmm. and then at the right time i'll have the conversation with the person and say well look there was this 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 and this mm-hmm. with the benefit of hindsight this is showing them where to look but not what to see given you know all the other priorities all the other demands all the other things that we need to get done in a finite point of period of time mm-hmm. you know and let's not do the heroics i was on emails till 10 o'clock at night and working saturday and sunday and I'm not an advocate for that. That's not a big or clever thing to do or a situation to have yourself in for too long. What would you do differently with a bit? So once you kind of frame things like that, they're very quick people generally, generally acknowledge and recognize that. That would be what I would typically do. Great. Um, and I think the next level, so the training, which is very sort of prescriptive, a lot of information going one way, coaching coming two ways. And then the mentorship stuff, I think, is really where you're crossing the line in terms of more sensitive areas and sensibilities, particularly if you're, you're either challenging or inviting someone, you know, uh, at the same level, similar age peer group. Um, I'm, you know, I'm uber respectful of people I work with mm-hmm. uh, and I don't want to condescend or patronize or, you know, anything in terms of that. So I think it's really a case of bringing people's attention to mm-hmm. uh, different ways of doing things. Um, but often, you know, if it's not challenged, then people will either realize that they're not getting things done, um, deadlines are, get, are being put back, objectives are not being met, mm-hmm. um, and then that becomes a harder challenge, you know, mm-hmm. more formally, which is all of these things, are, you know, continue to be outstanding, they're not done, and we're well off the deadline. I think what we can attribute some, if not all of that, to is some of these issues. And, um, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to micromanage you. You've identified what the issues are. You've agreed what modifications you need to make to your behavior. You need to get on and do it. And if you do, I think you'll come out the other side. If you don't, I think you'll continue to kind of tread water, potentially Mm -hmm. fail. The relationship will come under some tension. You and I will part company. Interesting. Off you go. Great. Thank you for that masterclass on coaching behavior change. That was was brilliant. And Steve, there's still... I, I... from the last session, I wanted to eventually talk to you about scaling and selling your previous business, but we've run out of time again. So you'll have to come so back right. for a third time, um, maybe in another year or hopefully less, and talk about that. And we've also not talked about CBT, which I think you're passionate about, cognitive behavioral therapy. So that I feel like this mm. is going to be an, a you could be a regular guest if you're if you're up for that. Okay. Well, right. who knows? Yeah, who knows? All right, Mark. No All right, worries. Stephen. As long as yeah, as long as that works for you, it definitely does. Thank you. I, I really interest interesting and uh, valuable uh, conversation. So thanks again, Steve, and uh, have an awesome day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye bye.
Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.